Hi there, this is Stuart McKee, host of Musicians FAQ Podcast. Please join me weekly where we have music and chat with some of Canada's hottest artists. Couldn't Hurt, the lead-off hit single from David Boyd Jane's latest album, Drove Me Country. David just happens to be my very special guest this week. My name is Stuart McKee, and this is Musicians FAQ. Living his dream and inspiring others to do the same through laws of attraction, hard work, grit and determination, thoughts have become things. In just four short years, my guest has gone from selling HVAC to selling out concerts and amassing millions of streams and a whole lot of accolades, but he has stayed true to his roots and who he is while creating great music. He is a CMAO nominee and a Boots and Hearts Emerging Artist Showcase winner. So joining me on Musicians FAQ this week, David Boyd Janes. David, welcome to the show, man. What's going on, Stuart? Thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, so with the show, I just want to get back to the, sort of the, the early roots and the beginnings and uh, find out where you were born and uh, what your childhood was like. Um, well, I was born and raised in um, Toronto, Ontario. Um, I was actually born at St. Joe's Hospital, which is not too far from where um, I, was, I grew up, really. And... Uh, um, I was um, brought into the world by two amazing, wonderful parents uh, from Newfoundland, and uh, they moved to Toronto from, from the East Coast um, in the late 70s, and um, oh, I was born in 1984, so that would make me uh, 37, and uh, I'm an only child, but I grew up with a lot of family and um, aunts, uncles, cousins, because my mom was one of 12. 
and my dad was one of three. Um, so, you know, we, uh, I grew up very much in the big city, but surrounded by East Coast culture um, and an East Coast way of life, just that being of being around your family a lot. And, you know, the, the kitchen parties and the, yeah. the spoons and the guitars. And, you know, that, that was very much my upbringing, regardless of it being in the big city of Toronto. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's where it kind of started. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as soon as you said Newfoundland, I thought, well, there's probably a lot of music in the household and uh, a lot of friends and family around and a lot of camaraderie. And uh, uh, very early on, one of my neighbors uh, and his family are from Newfoundland. I've, I've always enjoyed uh, the culture and the, uh, the enthusiasm um, from the East Coast and been out there many times. We were talking before the show about how fast paced and things Toronto is. And I was on the West Coast and I've been on the East Coast and much more laid back approach for sure. Um, so were there people, I mean, was everybody playing music in your family, playing an instrument or singing, or were they just big fans of music and always music on or? Um, yeah, there's no, there's no artists in my family. Um, I'm the only one. And, uh, but I mean, every single person, you know, had some love and appreciation for music, especially country music. Um, I mean, that's, that is the, the music and genre of choice, um, you know, within the walls of my home. Uh, we, we love all kinds of music, but country and Western at the time was, was really what we gravitated towards. Um, and none of us played it professionally or sang it professionally. We just, it's kind of funny, actually, like now that I'm sitting here thinking about it, I, I, I picture my mom and my, my aunts and uncles. Um, the joke, you know, growing up was when you'd start to sing, everyone would grab a lighter off the table and the lighter became the microphone. Right. Um, you know, so we used to say like, go oh, grab a lighter, get a lighter. You know, there's a lot of smokers in our family. And so there was always lighters scattered across the coffee table, but they would grab a lighter and they would sing and, you know, 99% of it was out of tune, but um, we were all just, we didn't care, you know, we were just loved just being together as a family and, and singing and having a good time. And, and those, those are some of the best memories you know, of my entire life that I'll never forget. And um, little did we know that all of this, you know, uh, lighter singing would actually spiral into a career in music. And um, they're all very proud of, of what has um, resulted, you know, uh, in my career so far. So it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I bet. Uh, so when did you first start playing the guitar or playing an instrument? Was it, was there a guitar or which was the first instrument you kind of played around with? Um, I think the first instrument, like a lot of young kids is just banging on pots and pans. Like yeah. that, that was, that, that is a real thing. You know, it's not, it's not just what you see in the movies. Like um, that is a real thing where kids just start banging on pots and pans and, and they're just thrilled with the um, discovery of this new sound that, you know, it started off with pots and pans playing the spoons is obviously a thing in, in East coast and, and was something that we did and still do. Um, and then it kind of trickled over to the guitar at a very young age. I was just thrilled with the sounds the guitar made, um, not even really understanding it. And, um, you know, it was uh, next thing you know, I think it was my 16th birthday, I think it was, or my 13th birthday. Um, and my uncle Ed, my dad's brother, um, he, he gave me my very first six string. And, uh, you know, I played it a little bit. And then I just kind of put it under my bed because I, you know, I was, I was young and I, and I, and I didn't have the, the patience to want to really learn. So, right. and at the time hockey was my thing. So I, I wasn't thinking about playing the guitar. I was just thinking about, you know, playing hockey. So, um, but I got my first guitar very young. And, um, and I think just because it wasn't just something I could do and, uh, you know, uh, learn quickly. I was like, oh, I don't want to do it. <laughs> so it went under the bed. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's a common thing. I mean, I, I've heard that with, you know, many even famous guitar players where, I mean, I remember Springsteen talking about that in his biography and the, the first go around didn't really have much luck. And then the second time it really stuck and then he really pursued it. Um, it so as far as the hockey, so what's your team? A Leafs fan? Is it? Oh, don't do this to me, Stuart. All right, we won't. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I'm you know actually. What? Listen, I'll tell you. I'll answer the question, but I, I, I joke because 
anytime we get asked to pick sides of anything, um, we all, it's, we lose on one end of the spectrum always. Yeah. Um, so, but I mean, here's my answer. Um, the team, and this is a true answer. I'm not trying to dodge the question. The, the real answer is I cheer for the team that fights for the win. Yeah. Because that's my mentality as a person in the music industry and, and just as, as a man. Um, it breaks my heart when, you know, we go to these games and we pay crazy money. You know, I took my dad to a Leaf game three years ago. It cost me $1,000 because the tickets, the tickets were like $240 each, you know. And then we went to this restaurant. Um, I can't remember what it's called. It's right beside the Scotiabank Arena. Um, I think it's called uh, the sports bar, real sports bar, I think is what it's called. And I shit you not, I paid $50 for a pound of wings. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I got to tell you, these wings were incredible. But I mean, I said to my dad, I said, you know, what really breaks my heart with all of this is the fans, the true fans, the ones that are not going there to impress some business or talk over the game or look at their cell phones the real fans can't afford to support their team because it's just they it the hockey is not what it used to be the hockey is not about hockey it's about business and it's about selling tickets and and feeding you know how many chicken fingers can we sell tonight you know and it breaks my heart because i think very much like the music industry the amount of drive and passion it takes to carve a career in the NHL um, or in the music industry or in anything, um, it, it's, it, it just takes so much hard work and so much drive and passion to get there. And, and then the ones that appreciate it the most have to sit up on the ceiling of the arena because that's where tickets are almost affordable. Yeah. And, uh, and I hate that. So, you know, I, I don't watch hockey really anymore um, because of that. Um, I enjoy it and, and I watch it sometimes, but I, I was a season seat holder for the Toronto Marlies for several years um, because I felt like those boys still cared and they played with their heart. Um, and it just, it really, it really upset me when I took my dad to see the Leaf game and I just watched some of the players literally just not, they just didn't care. You know, they, they went out and they played and, and it was a half ass shift and they just didn't care. And, and that, and it really bothered me because I just felt like those players at one point were kids watching television, dreaming about being in the NHL. And now they're there and they play like they don't give a shit. And, and I really, I just can't support that. Yeah, no, I'm with you 100%. And it's funny, I mean, only games that I've been doing the last bunch of years would be where I got tickets through work, um, you know, corporate sponsors and things like that. Absolutely. Um, and it's funny with the concerts, because as you're talking, I was going to draw that same parallel to music, which you obviously took us there. Um, I mean, a lot of the shows that I've been going to have been in the small clubs and, and things like that over the last five years. I just, I find that, you know, it's it's the up and comers that are hungry and putting on the killer shows. I mean, you know, the Stones still put on a big show, but Ticket prices got outrageous for a while. I did notice that um, post sort of and, and during the pandemic that the ticket prices on the Stone Stewards have come down a little bit. But uh, yeah, it got to be a little nuts there for sure. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something, man, and I'm a big advocate for this. Um, you know, my father, my father is one of those Leaf fans that like he sees the first game and they have a good shift and he'll look at you and be like, I don't know, man, they look good this year. <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah and he's he's one of those guys and and I told him I said you want to know something and I'm from Toronto right and and so I I I say this publicly and and I don't care if you share this you want the Leafs to be a better team stop going to the game just stop going it's really that simple guys stop going the fans don't realize how much power they really have right you know, they, 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 they gawk over these celebrities and they, and they elevate these, these players like they're superhuman and, and they're just people just like me and you. And if you stop going to the game, then those people in the corporate, corporate ladder, they're going to have to sit down and have a meeting and figure shit out. Because if they don't, 
the building's going to close down and there's going to be no more team. And so we as, as supporters, as fans, um, we have way more control than we realize and way more power than we realize. And <clears throat> my theory is, if the Air Canada Centre, I don't care it's called Scotiabank Arena, the Air Canada Centre holds 22,000 people. And as long as there's 22,000 people in that building, it doesn't matter how good the team is or how bad the team is because it can only hold 22,000 people. And that's what matters at a corporate level. Yeah. So it, it's really sad to look at it that way because it takes away all the, you know, all the the this the stuff you know uh, of of ooh the hockey you know and and but people need to realize if you really are unhappy with a team stop supporting them yeah, if you 100%. really don't like an if you don't like an artist if they don't treat you well if they don't respond to your messages if they 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 treat themselves like they're better than you on a higher level then don't buy the music don't show up to the shows i mean it's 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 really simple um but Unfortunately, you know, it's hard to, you don't have to sell hockey to Canadians. You don't have to sell hockey to Toronto. Um, those seats are always going to be full and Toronto is never going to win the cup because there's no reason to invest the money into a, a team that is worthy of winning the cup because you can only fit 22,000 people in the building. And I don't care what Leaf fans I piss off saying that it's the truth. Yeah. You know, well, it, I've heard it, the truth. I've heard it before. And I, and I agree. I mean, like, you know, they've had some of the, the lousiest stats over the years and some of the best attendance. So that, it, it, you know, um, but we, we could go on all day. We should do an episode just about <laughs> hockey, but, but you're right. It's a Canadian thing. And I remember the strike years ago when the strike and I started watching uh, women's hockey and I started watching junior hockey. And, and like I said, after that, I never really got back into going to NHL games, except if somebody gave me a pair of free tickets, um, you know, uh, but yeah, I, I still watch it at home, but not as much as I used to, but uh, yeah, <laughs> it, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing better than watching the highlight reels when, and when you see sort of like a, a Tuesday night game or, a, you know, what you think is a nothing game because it's a long season and somebody's playing their ass off and, and making a hell of a move, whether it's a goalie or somebody scoring an incredible goal. Um, and you know, I, that, I, I just, yeah, I, I, I just love, um, I love passion, you know, I'm a very passionate person. And, and so when I watch someone um, fall into the rabbit hole of, well, I'm a professional now, so I don't have to try hard anymore. Yeah. Um, man, that I just want to smack those people, man, because it's like they don't realize how quickly, how quickly something can be taken away from you. You know, truly, like they don't understand and, and, and maybe they do understand. And, and I don't know, but all I know is that in, in the AHL, you know, um, they're getting paid X amount of dollars for a show or a game. Sorry, see, my brain is in music. And when they get called up to play a lease game, they get the base pay of a lease um, prorated over the amount of games they're about to play. And so every one of those games, they're getting like, I don't know, something like 40 or $50,000 or something crazy for one game. Yeah. Um, and that's life-changing money if you're broke. Sure. You know, um, but if you, if you have all this money now and you have all this fame, I mean, do you, do you really, it, it, like, you, you know, some people then kind of be like, well, I, I got it now. So like, I'm not fighting for anything, yeah. Yeah. you know, and the passion gets diminished. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it's an age-old story, and, and you see it. I mean, cheesy as it is, you see it in the Rocky, the you know, the boxing movies with the Rocky story where he was that hungry, poor kid from, you know, in Philadelphia, and then he becomes this tycoon, and he gets soft, and he gets his ass kicked, and then he gets humbled, and then he goes back at it again. But, uh, you know, it's funny that hockey came back, and all the sports teams got to come back. But, I mean, I, I grew up in the restaurant business, and I'm sitting here looking around town. So many restaurants closed. So many people are out of work. You know, we weren't allowed to go out to bars. Musicians weren't allowed to play uh, at the club level, but yet the big acts and, and the big teams are out playing and getting these free passes. And, you know, so, yeah, it seems to be a bit of a double standard. Um, yep. No yep. Doubt about but it. you're right. I, I, I could talk about that forever, man. But it's um, I think, I mean, in reality, people that are listening are wondering, why are we still talking about hockey? <laughs> it's not it's not about hockey. It's no. about 
the understanding of passion and not taking things for granted, um, you know, and, and working hard and and never taking your foot off the gas. And, and that's, that's the fundamentals that I've built my business on within music and things that I've done over the last four years, Um, you know, it's just not taking things for granted and regardless of the success and regardless of the awards and the what competitions and whatever um, me realizing that, you know, winning boots and hearts isn't going to set me up for life. It's, it's, it was one thing that happened in my career that I'm very grateful for. And, and I, and I'm, I still speak very proudly of it. I, I don't hide behind it. Um, you know, um, and I don't take it for granted. So. Just a little more money, just a little bit of fame, get a little more sun, and a little less rain. What I want ain't always what I need, and satisfaction ain't always guaranteed. But the sun comes up and the sun goes down, I breathe it. It all works out And that's a fact I'm gonna kiss your lips With my eyes closed Cause we're not promised tomorrow But the sun comes up And the sun goes down I breathe it And then I breathe out Too much good to complain about sun goes down, I breathe it, and then I breathe out too much good to complain about anything. song called another day by david boyd james yeah Yeah. it's funny before the interview i'd written down a few words to kind of describe you and just off the top of my head i'd written down grateful humble hardworking, pay it forward um thank you yeah so i mean and it's interesting i and i heard a a, an interview you did uh on the canadian country music podcast and, and you talked about you know how you don't you really haven't taken the time to celebrate um you know not that there's necessarily anything wrong with with doing that um, but the accolades and the awards, I mean, cause you, you're on a mission and you've got your eye on the ball. And I think when you kind of slow down to kind of high five yourself too much, you, you maybe lose some of that momentum or lose that focus. Um, it's true. I, I, to this day, I, I truly have not celebrated a single thing that I've accomplished in the last four years. Um, not boots, not Warner, not Montana's, not, nothing the album the number one album on apple itunes nothing because to me those are all just signs that i'm heading in the right direction and and things are happening um in a positive way and and i think you know 
I don't want anyone to get the message wrong that I'm saying you shouldn't celebrate your, your achievements. I think you should. Um, my personal style and my personal um, way that I like to do things is I acknowledge the achievements and I acknowledge the successes and I show gratitude for them and gratefulness for them. Um, but I don't lean on them as individual milestones, uh, you know, as like, well, you know, I deserve that or this should have happened or, you know, it's, it happens. I'm grateful for it. And I'm already working on something else, you know, and it, it's just to keep myself focused and, you know, because I'm, I'm nowhere close to where I want to be. Um, not even close, you know, um, and, 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 and I think that the secret of that is I'll never get there, yeah. you know, because I'm always chasing, you know, the, something else. And it's not because I'm not grateful. It's because I'm just the type of person where I want to, at the end of this, whatever that means, I want to be able to sit back and say, I, I, I really did everything I could have done to, um, you know, get out my message and, and do it in a way that was always respectful, um, always appreciative. Um, you know, I didn't half-ass anything. Um, and, and that to me is what success will mean once I get there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so that's great. Yeah. It's interesting as, I, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, you know, there's probably so many people have been where you are now, but 10, 15, 20 years from them, from now, we never heard of them. Um, and there's probably a lot more almost rands than there were of actual successful people, because maybe that's what they've done is, you know, I've heard so many times of people, they've got the record deal and now we're signing where things are going to happen. And, um, and again, so many people I've talked to, it's like, no, that's actually when the hard work starts. I mean, if you read Clive Davis's book, there's lots of people that they signed and poured money into, and, you know, you never heard of these guys and they just never had a career. And, uh, so I mean, where you are now is, is fantastic, but, uh, there's momentum, but so of, of, you know, taking a moment and, and maybe it isn't an award or maybe it's not, um, some kind of achievement, but you know, what, what's been the biggest thrill for you so far? Um, my, my, my biggest achievement, one of my biggest achievements so far, um, Recently, I had a, a fan reach out to me and um, she was engaged for three years, I think, two or three years. And um, she walked away from the engagement because she knew all along it wasn't right. And she just couldn't find the courage to pull the trigger and, and end it. And um, when she heard my story of what I went through four years ago and, you know, all, just the details of all of that. Um, she said that it was a story that sat with her for the last year and a bit. And she finally found the courage to just tell the guy, I can't do it. Um, that's been one of my biggest achievements so far. Wow. Because, you know, it's not about the music. The music, the music is my passion. The music is my, the music is my, um, it's, it's my, up, it's my platform to stand on to deliver a message. You know, my music is real. It's authentic. It's about real life situations. Um, and, and my talent, the, the gift that I've been given is music. You know, other people have other gifts, whether it's teaching, cooking, um, delivering a message, you know, lecturing. Um, everyone has a gift and mine is just music. And But what's important within the music is the message of encouraging people to chase their dreams and encouraging people to not be in a situation that they're not happy with and thoughts become things is, is, is truly a thing. It's if, if, if you're not happy where you are in your life, no matter what it is, you have all the power to change it. Um, so when I meet someone that tells me that my message uh, and my story influenced them to change their lives and do something positive in their life, that means more than any award, any number one song or album or anything, because, you know, I had the number one album last week. I don't have it this week. Right. You know, I'm, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a forever rotating. Um, it's like the stock market, you know, 
Like when, 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 when you have the number one song, you better take a screenshot because that shit doesn't last for more than a couple of days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At least in my world. <laughs> and uh, you know, so I think, you know, all those accolades are cool, man. And, and, you know, I've had some amazing, amazing moments, not to discredit any of them, but to me, when someone tells me I was in a really bad space and, you know, you, uh, inspired me to leave and, and start a new life i mean shit dude that you know that that to me you, you can't you can't recreate that you know and and so and i've had many of those that's just the most recent one so i'm really grateful for all those people that trust in me and trust in you know the vision of of thoughts become things and believe in yourself and anything is truly possible and, and when people really grab i mean there's another lady who sold her house and went back to school. I mean, this is a crazy story. She sold her house and went back to school three years ago after she met me a year into my career. and She's been following me ever since. She sold her house. She went back to school to get involved with the music business. And <clears throat> this past August, she had graduated from school and one of her first gigs was to be a stagehand at Boots and Hearts which happened to be that she worked on the day that I was playing. Okay. Um, I mean, that's full circle. Like that's insane. You know, that's I, 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 yeah, I inspired her in some way and, and, and she went for it. And now she's doing a, a festival that I was playing on and, and actually working my, my, my show. Um, and I just think again, like, that's just so cool, you know, like that's so neat. Yeah. It's funny. There's an, to me, an interesting parallel uh, between you and Susie Corey in that respect. Um, I mean, so 2017, four years ago, you quit your job, you decided to do this full time. And wow, I mean, what a ride it's been. And, and four years really in the scheme of things is not that much time. And, uh, no. you know, it was similar for her as well, where she just said, you know what, I'm going to do this. And, you know, that it's an incredible thing. Um, so how do you go about day-to-day keeping yourself on track and keeping yourself do you have like daily goals weekly goals or is it more long-term goals and you just kind of always have to keep your eye on the ball um i mean i have so i do i'm I'm full-time in music um i don't have any side hustles or anything going on outside of music um and every day i'm um constant i mean now it's it's much different now than it was a few years ago because now now there's actual there's things to do and stuff happening so you know um constantly um working on writing um working on um you know practicing with my band getting things ready for next year for for shows um i recently just started my own writer's round called the writer's room in etobicoke um which is going to promote um people coming out and playing yeah, people playing their original music and, and getting paid to play, which is like, you know, a Christmas miracle in this industry. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I, I just want to help people grow their business. And, and at the same time, that's actually helping me grow my business, too. You know, so there's a method behind the madness. But um, really, it's just networking and working on new songs, practicing, um, staying healthy and staying fit. So when you go on the stage, you know, you're, you're in shape. Um, you know, it's, uh, you, you have to stay busy. You can't, you can't just sit down and do nothing. Cause when you sit down and do nothing, um, someone told me once, and I'm not a religious person, but someone told me, they said, you know, um, the, an idling mind is the devil's workshop, yeah. you know, so you got to stay busy and, you know, nothing. I, I saw this new TikTok that came out and it, it's really cool. It said, nothing is coming. No one is coming. You know, no one is coming to knock on the door and tell you, hey, it's time to practice. Hey, it's time to write some new music. Hey, you should try and book some shows. Um, you got to go out and do it yourself. So I think a lot of times we need good advice is to sit down and write out what is, what is it you want to achieve this week, this month, this year. And it needs to be realistic. You know, I'm not going to sit down and say, I want to play at the Sky Dome, you know, because this is it's just not going to happen. You know, it, it's not in the cards for it to happen. And, and then, you know, someone will say, Oh, thoughts become things, Dave. And it's like, well, you got to be realistic. Yeah. <laughs> you got to set attainable goals that are, that actually make sense. 
you know um and that's what i try to do and that, and it's hard that that that's that's the trick because when you first start out as an artist all you want to do is you just want to do everything and you're so excited and you have all this excitement in you but what happens is if people don't have attainable goals or set realistic boundaries within their dreams they pour everything they have into something that's not attainable it fails and then they go well this doesn't work i'm not doing it anymore and they quit um and that really sucks because there's a lot of people out there that have a lot of talent and they don't get to you know they don't get that opportunity um because maybe they just kind of did things in a different in, in a backwards order because they didn't know any better um and that's why i'm trying as as i'm also trying to elevate my career i'm also trying to take a look back and say who can i help that is actually serious about this um you know and and stuff like the writers round has been born because of it yeah that's awesome Some kind of thing rolling down your windows. Everybody's talking about it. Heading over the let's go. Street sounds showing directions. My favorite place this time. Of yeah, I'm all about it. It's another late night driving down these back lines, singing all the songs that we know. It's another cool beer party going over here. It's always seems to know. Give me that Summertime Feeling, the very first single by David Boyd James from his debut album, Thoughts Become Things, released in 2018. What a great song. Yeah, and I know, um, you know, again, referencing Susie, she had started that festival a couple of years ago, the Drive-In Festival. And I mean, there's lots of people doing these great things now. I think you, you really have to be, um, you know, DIY uh, to a certain degree. I mean, you get the support of the big company, but that doesn't mean that they're going to do everything for you. Um, so, but now no. speaking about goals, I mean, you did, uh, you know, there's a great story about you writing yourself a check for a hundred thousand dollars when you were younger and that came through pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was nine, I was 19 at the time, I was 18 or 19 at the time. And, uh, I was working at Subway sandwiches. Um, and, uh, I had saw this movie called the secret by Rhonda Burns. It's an old movie. And, um, 
in the movie, it talks about, you know, the law of attraction and thoughts become things and all of this stuff was, was, you know, in this movie. And in the movie, there's this, this guy that, that says, um, you should write yourself a check for a hundred thousand. Well, he wrote himself a check for a hundred thousand dollars and he stuck it on the ceiling. And, um, every morning when he woke up, the first thing he saw on his ceiling was this check. So it was this reminder, um, visionary board, if you will, um, you know, that, this is what he wants to achieve. And so at the time I was working at Subway. So hundred thousand dollars is just not achievable. Um, but what it did, and this is what's really cool about the, this whole theory is what it did is it always had me thinking about that hundred thousand dollars. And what it did is it made me realize that I'm never going to see that kind of a, I'm never going to achieve that kind of a goal working at Subway unless I own it. Um, so the whole point of thoughts become things is it runs so much deeper than I want this, right? Um, you start thinking about, you start rationalizing your, with, within yourself to realize that, well, if I want $100,000 or if I want to make $100,000 a year, you know, I'm not going to make it at Subway because I just looked at my check and it was $800 for two weeks and just do the math. You need to make $500 a day to make $100,000 a year. Um, you know, so it, it just doesn't, it, it's impossible. So that's where the, the rationalization comes in of if you really want to make $100,000 a year, if that's the goal, um, what is it that you have to do in order to make that much money? Um, if you want to lose 50 pounds, what do you have to do to lose 50 pounds? You know, you can't say I want to lose 50 pounds and you're eating McDonald's. They just don't line up, Right. And, and so the check on the ceiling was a constant reminder to me. And what that did without me realizing it is it made me realize my self-worth because I started to feel like I deserved that hundred thousand dollars and I wasn't getting paid enough, you know? So it kind of does this thing with your brain where you kind of go, I don't want to work at Subway anymore. I want to work somewhere where this goal is actually achievable, um, which turned into me selling gym memberships for good life fitness. Um, which was a commission job. And, you know, I started to make more money, but it wasn't, it wasn't quite what I needed, but it was in the right direction. Um, so what happened was, is the, the, the law of attraction and, and the act as if theory, you know, I used to go to the gym to sell gym memberships and I'd wear a suit um, and nobody else wore suits. Everybody else wore like gym clothes. And the, the GM of Good Life at Union Station came to me and made fun of me for wearing a suit. You know, he's like, you, you work in a gym. Why are you in a suit? And I told him, I said, we are in the, the center core of downtown Toronto, right at the, the financial district. And nine out of 10 people that walk through that door as customers, or clients um, are in a suit because they're coming from work. So at the age of 19, I realized I made the connection that if I dress like them and I look like them, they'll talk to me. If I don't, they, they have this perceived notion of like, oh, here's just some, here's some clown in a gym, you know? Right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and so, so because I look like them and I was relatable to them, you know, now they want to talk to me about upgrading their gym memberships or, or bringing their friends in, or it was this really crazy thing. And, um, and funny story is how I got into HVAC was there was a company that came in to recruit. They were looking, they were headhunting for sales reps for an HVAC company. And because I was the only one in, in the, in the sales team that was in a suit, I stood out. Hmm. So they said, we want to talk to that guy. And that conversation turned into, we want to offer you uh, an opportunity to work for this heating and cooling company called one hour heating and cooling in Toronto. And uh, that was the job that, that got me the hundred thousand wow. um, dollars. That, that was, that was the job that I got 10% of my sales and did 1.5 million or 1.4 million, whatever it was in the first year and, and, and made 10%. So a hundred hundred thousand plus. Okay. And, you know, it's, it's crazy, right? When you hear the story in three and a half minutes, but it all started with me saying, okay, I want this. 
I want to attract this into my life. Um, and it's not wishful thinking. It's not, you know, someone's listening to this podcast and they're thinking, okay, I've always wanted a Lamborghini. So now I'm going to close my eyes and all I'm going to think about <laughs> is Lamborghinis. And, but, but here's the funniest thing. It's like, it's not that it doesn't happen that fast, but what it does do is it's, you know, th there's a, I don't know what it's called. There's a fancy word for it, but if you don't, if you do not own a Land Rover, as an example, uh, I don't even like Land Rovers, but you, you don't own a Land Rover. And then all of a sudden, one of your, your good buddies buys one. And, and he's like, come over, Stu, and check out my Land Rover. And you come over and you're like, oh, it's cool. I promise you, I promise you, for the next four to five days, all you're going to see on the street is Land Rovers. Yeah, isn't that true? And it's not because all of a sudden they're just there. They have always been there. You just are not paying attention to them. So therefore you don't see them. Yeah. So if we turn that into real life things that, you know, whatever it may be, when you start paying attention to it, it starts manifesting itself more in front of you because you're, you're, you're aware of it. Um, you know, and that can change somebody's life. I mean, it, as it did for me. Yeah. It's incredible. That's awesome. Um, so with the songwriting, um, you know, so you've got the writer's room coming up and you've done co-writes. Um, I think your first single was co-written with you and James Barker and Aaron Allen uh, and somebody else on there. Um, and you did a tune that um, had been done as well by uh, by Keen Brown a couple of years ago. And, and it's funny when I when I heard Good As You, it floored me because I was like, wow, this is just a great song. This is my vibe. And and it had that familiarity, but I, I didn't realize at first and then I'm always a geek that checks the credits and who wrote, and I went, Oh shit, this is a Kane Brown song. But I mean, you just <laughs> owned it. You just owned it, man. Um, and, and that's now my favorite version or the definitive version for me. Um, so oh, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so what do you prefer? Do you prefer writing songs on your own co-writing? Are there certain co co-writers that are, have become your kind of favorite co-writers? Are you still kind of casting a wide net at this point? Um, my first song that ever released to Canadian country radio was summertime feeling. And, and I wrote that completely on my own in my, my old bedroom in the dead of January. Um, the song that you're referring to couldn't hurt was written by James Barker, Aaron Allen and Joe Irving. Um, and that was my first major label release with Warner. Um, and to answer the question about songwriting, my favorite person on the planet, to write songs with is Craig Brooks okay. and uh, and Aaron Allen. Those those two dudes are my my top favorite songwriters to work with, and the reason why is because um, they understand to not get in my way as a songwriter, and I understand to not get in their way, and we have a really solid respect and connection for one another as songwriters. Um, and we just have a special thing when we, when we work together. Um, I'm not discrediting any other songwriters I've written with, but those two dudes in particular are my favorites just because we have a, we have a special thing. Um, I'm open to working with anybody and everybody. Um, but I have, I've learned now, um, that I have a very, um, I have a very low tolerance for, for writers that don't want to be open to ideas and communication because when we write a song and then we, we put a ton of money behind it to get it produced properly and get it out to the airwaves and everything, um, those songs are, have the potential to be heard by millions of people and, and affect people in positive and negative ways. So I think the scariest thing about my about where I am currently in my career is that when I do something or I say something or I write something, um, it's different now because people are actually going to hear it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, 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 and they're going to judge it and they're going to, um, connect with it or not connect with it. And so it's so important when you're songwriting, um, to write from the heart and to write something that is, actually means something because the fans know you know they know i can put out a bunch of songs and i can say to, to my fans um 
what's your favorite? What's your least favorite? And nine times out of 10, their least favorite song is a song that I did not co-write. Mm. And, and they don't even know if I co-wrote it or not. M- most people just think I've written everything all by myself in a yeah. room with a piece of paper and a, and a pencil, right? Um, you know, that's, that, that's, that, that assumption has been going on for, you know, decades. <laughs> that every artist just writes their own material and it blows their mind when they find out that, you know, um, Garth Brooks didn't write this song and, you know, yeah. um, but I, I mean, I, I'm open to everything, my, but you know, um, I, uh, what I'm not open to is, and I've had these rights. I had one recently. Um, and I'm public about it cause I don't care. I think if you're if, if, as an artist, if your head is so far up your ass that you don't realize that you're, you're just walking all over people's ideas. Mm. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be pretty obvious when nobody wants to write with you anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, or it should know. be. <laughs> yeah. It, it, you some, know, people don't, just... some people don't have that self-awareness, but. <laughs> Buddy, listen, I was in a right where this guy was trying to explain something. I, I swear to God, this just happened. And the other artist picked up a guitar and just started jamming <laughs> while the guy was trying to talk. And I, and I, I, I literally, I left the right. I was like, I can't, I can't do this. Like, what kind of disrespect is that? Like, you know, I, I can't deal with those types of people, man. I don't care how famous you are or who you are. I, I really don't care. I, it's, you know, I, I can't, I can't do it. We're, we're writing music for the fans and we're, we're, we're putting our heart and soul and dollar in, into this. And, you know, I, I, uh, the fans don't realize that, you know, people message me all the time and they say, oh, can you put out this song or can you do that song? And I'm so excited that they actually care enough to message me to say that, but they don't understand that it, it costs like $10,000 to do a song. Like production is five to 6,000. And then you have, you know, once you put it to radio and some marketing, you know, you're a 10, 15 grand a song That's at a professional level, you know, it's a lot of money, you know? So when you're going to, when you're going to really dig into something, um and and do it for real it's got to mean something to you with the writers i get to work with and and you know producers like jeff delziel is an example um you know uh you know it's a bit different now right it's like you you really gotta it's gotta really mean it's gotta mean something to me for me to cut it otherwise i won't do it yeah makes sense yeah i mean i've certainly noticed the last few years that uh, it's different i mean people aren't just putting out full albums right away it's singles and and eps and and kind of working up to the to the album um and there's a process there and and a lot of time and money and effort and 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 a group effort obviously as you've got your whole team there um well and i was gonna ask you you know sort of going back the first time that you performed um you know saying song whether it's a cover song your own song was it you know in high school or was it earlier you know, talent shows in school, or was it sort of post, uh, you know, drunken night in the bar doing karaoke or, you know, when was the first time you kind of got up there and started realizing that, Hey, I can sing. Uh, I still don't think I can sing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You keep keep working on that, (laughs) David. No, I am. And you know, it's funny because uh, my bass player and my, and my music director, Ben Miller, um, you know, he's just as psychotic as I am when it comes to trying to be a perfectionist. And we really believe we suck. And that's, and that's what makes us get better. You know, um, I don't think I suck, but I also don't think, you know, um, that I'm this incredible vocalist. I think, I think I'm a great performer because um, I put on a good show. Um, but I also think that the moment you start feeling like you've, you, you know, you've got somewhere, you'll stop working. Um, just like our earlier talk about the leaps. Um, so I think for me, it started off with just attention seeking, <clears throat> you know, when I was a kid, um, getting on a stage and singing, uh, and having girls, you know, scream and cheer. And I mean, you know, I was, I didn't care about the music. I cared about these girls that thought I was cute, you know, yeah. that's how it starts. Um, but then as time evolves and you start to realize that you need a lot more than just cheering girls to have a sustainable career um you know you start to realize shit i gotta practice and i have to get better because now you start 
I mean, the first time I went to Nashville, um, I remember coming home and my, my mom and dad said to me, they're like, so how was Nashville? What did you learn? And I, I said, I learned that I, I need to practice because everyone down there is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so for me, I think I've never really performed and realized, um, wow, I'm good. Um, I've, I, I always, and, and I'm sure a lot of artists can relate to this. I, every single show, um, even when I kill it, you know, I've had some shows where we've just absolutely smashed it. And I come off the show and the first thing I ask is, um, what did you not, what didn't you like about the show? Wow. Um, what, what was it about the show that bothered you or, or you didn't like, or because, you know, the fans will, the fans do an amazing job at feeding your ego and telling you you're great, mm-hmm. whether you're, you're on the stage or you're off the stage, those are your supporters. They are going to cheer for you no matter what. Um, and I'm very humbled and grateful for that. And, and in order to keep those fans and grow those fans, I want to continually grow as an artist and get better as an artist. And so um, I have, I have yet come out. I have yet to come off a stage in my career um, and thought it was perfect. Um, So um, you can include this in the show if you want. Um, The next show um, we have coming up outside of the writer's room shows that I'm doing um, is going to be at the Red Barn, just outside of Chatham. Uh, December December 19th um, is going to be the date. It's going to be myself and former Canadian Idol winner, uh, Brian Mello. Um, so it's going to be a crazy show and, um, the tickets will go on sale on the, uh, let me pull up my calendar quickly on the 22nd. Um, uh, so November 22nd is when the tickets go on sale. Um, excuse me for that event. Uh, well, and I noticed that Aaron and Amy had just played there, I think last weekend. Um, yeah, so that, I, I, I called Aaron and I said, Hey man, this venue that you're at looks amazing. And he yeah. put me in touch with the owners and uh, they were very happy to, to schedule something for December. So that's where oh, we're going to be. That's cool. Yeah. It's funny. I saw it and I showed it to my wife and I said, man, we got to check this venue out. It's, uh, we didn't get up for their show, but I thought this place looks really cool. And I hadn't heard of it before. So was that the, I know I saw something you had posted on Instagram this week about big announcement coming. Is that, was that a big announcement or is there something, uh, no, something that, bigger that, still? That, <laughs> oh, no, there's something bigger still. Um, that, that is one of the shows that isn't, it's not publicly announced yet. Um, we're, we're, we did the teaser last night. We're going to announce the venue tonight uh, at midnight, um, but tickets won't go on sale until Monday. Well, there you have it. Tickets on sale today for David Boyd Janes at the Red Barn Stage in Blenheim, December 19th. That's a Sunday night. Get your tickets now. It's going to be a hell of a show. That concludes part one of my interview with David. Stay tuned for part two next week where some additional surprises and announcements may be revealed. We're going to wrap things up with David's latest single, Behind Bars. Because that's what I heard when she flipped the bird and took off down the road. That blacked out Chevy, Lord, it kills me, it's still in my name. Guess I'll sit right here and order up another drink. Behind bars, well, that's where I've been. Since she said, go to hell, this neon city is what I'm locked up in. Behind bars, it ain't no joke.
Thank you for listening to Musicians FAQ Podcast with your host, Stuart McKee. We're here every week with great Canadian musical artists 